Father, we come to Your Word, and I pray that You would help us be hungry. Hunger for the true food that is Your Word. And we know that we will receive from Your hand that which is most satisfying. Father, I pray that You would awaken sinners to their need for forgiveness and show them the way that is the finished work of Christ. Give us all life and life more abundantly as we approach your word. Holy Spirit, teach us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I feel a sneeze coming on, just be warned. It's kind of lingering there. What a way to open the message, huh? <laughs> Anywho, um, wow, this passage... Um, We've, I've already had a couple conversations, uh, several conversations actually, about this passage and this message with several people. And sometimes it's hard to look at a passage and say, okay, let's, let's figure this out and let's wrestle with this and let's do the good work of observation and interpretation and application. And this one is done. All the work's done. All I got to do is just sit in front of you, which hopefully by the power of the Holy Spirit is what I'm going to do. Um, and we're actually we're going to start with the first chunk, which is 19 to 22. So let me read that first. Um, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. In full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's <laughs> just so incredible. Just, just reading it. But it should serve as no surprise that the first word of our passage is therefore. And you can kind of see how we, how we choose what passages to do and where to start because you're kind of starting another thought, which I've Ties back to the other thought before it, but therefore we, for therefore since those are those are words that we're looking for when we're looking into new passages. So here we are. Uh, therefore, so we're coming into, and this has been a long time coming. We're coming into kind of a conclusion, kind of an application section after all the work that has been done to put Jesus on full display as superior to all things and to all people of the Old Covenant, which is what we've spent the last nine plus chapters doing. Um, And that's really what the therefore is there for. It's saying all that we've talked about up to this point, and it's been a lot, therefore. Okay? So what do we do with all that we have seen? What do we do with all that we've been shown? We finished last week by seeing God's promise of a new covenant as had been set forth in Jeremiah 33. Um, and that was in Hebrews t- uh, 10, uh, 16 to 18. This is the covenant. This is the end of our last passage. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So the point of that is, there's a new covenant. 
And, and we say that, and it's, it is very cliche to us, but I think it's very, very, very important for us to understand the newness of this covenant at the time that it was established, especially in the mind of these Jewish believers who had spent thousands of years under the old covenant. God had promised there was a new covenant coming. The new covenant happened. It appeared. Jesus inaugurated it. And the newness of this covenant literally fulfills and therefore changes everything. This is not a small thing. This is a major paradigm shift I said last week. And it's important to understand that. There is a new covenant. And under that new covenant, God has internalized the law. It's not on tablets anymore. not on stone. It's on flesh. It's on hearts. And... In this new covenant, he has vowed to remember our sins no more. So, the writer concludes, the once for all offering of Jesus for our sins that initiated this new covenant means that there is no longer any offering that should be made for sin. It is done. It is finished. No more debt I owe. Paid in full. All sufficient merit now my own. So then, therefore, how now shall we live in light of this magnificent truth? Well, the writer appeals to his brethren, and I guess his cistern too. Um, Therefore, brothers, which could be, it just means all believers, all the people who are in this new covenant. He appeals to them, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And we'll pause there. Now, we remember we said that we are the things that have been purified in heaven. That's been a few weeks ago. Jesus went into heaven and he purified the heavenly things. That's us. It wasn't furniture. It was his people, right? So we are the heavenly things that have been purified by the blood of Jesus. Well, that thought is here too. Since we have been purified by the blood of Jesus, to be those heavenly things, that means we have confidence to enter those holy places. How? By the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus offered to pay the penalty, offered to pay the penalty for our sins has purified us. Since we have confidence to, have, to enter the holy places because we have been purified. The blood of Jesus offered to pay the penalty for our sins has purified us. And listen, that is our confidence. And that word confidence is pretty interesting. It's the Greek word pareseia. pareseia, And the Bible sense lexicon defines this word confidence as the trait, listen, of being willing to undertake activities that involve risk or danger especially that involve being honest and straightforward in attitude and speech. Now think about confidence as being willing to undertake activities that involve risk or danger, especially that involve being honest and straightforward in attitude and speech. Have you ever worked to have this hard conversation with somebody and you know the only way that you can do it is just to be honest, just to be straightforward? 
And you're kind of like, oh, it's, oh, but you go in a conversation and you draw yourself up and you say, why? Because you know that what you're saying is true. It's sure. Okay. That's the confidence that we're talking about. But now watch this. That's not all it is. Strong's uh, definition says this. Uh, freedom in speaking. Unreservedness in speech. Open. Frankly. Without concealment. Without ambiguity or circumlocution, which is a great word. Uh, without the use of figures and comparisons. Free and fearless confidence. Cheerful courage. Boldness. Assurance. The deportment by which one becomes conspicuous or secures publicity. Now let me try to pull all that together. Try to bring these two definitions together. We get the full idea of confidence. In and of itself, listen to me, it is risky. It is very dangerous to enter the presence of God and be honest in your attitude and your speech. In and of yourself. Matter of fact, it would be deadly if we just did it ourselves. But... How could we have the willingness to walk into God's presence and speak freely and openly? How? Or even better yet, how could we freely and fearlessly do this audacious thing? By the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus gives us confidence in the very presence of God. And oh, get a hold of that and don't ever let go of it. And the writer makes it a plain spoken fact. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And one more time, that's what he spent nine plus chapters establishing. And here in verse 20, he kind of sums that up by saying, we have that confidence to enter those holy places by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. What a sentence. That act like it's clause. It's not even a sentence. The sacrificial system of rams and goats and bulls and birds relied on the death of animals. And through their death, through the shedding of their blood, and remember, the blood is the life, so they literally remove the life from the animal, And they provided that blood, that life, as a sacrifice for sins. The life of the animal was emptied as the blood was emptied. And the result was the death of the animal and the stand-ending nature of the blood for the sins of the people. It should be my blood that was shed. That's the righteous punishment for my sin. I should die. But instead, through the sacrificial system, God said, I'll let the animal die and you can offer the life of the animal in place of your own. Well, that's great. Thanks, God. But there's something better now. Again, there's a new covenant. Jesus bled and died. His blood was shed and drained. So His life left His physical body And that blood did so to pay the penalty for our sins. But something happened. Jesus didn't stay dead. Amen. 
He did not stay dead. He came back to life. And so now, the way that he provides to enter God's presence is not just through his death, not just through his blood that was drained, but now also through his life. And that's what the blood of animals could not do. The flesh of Jesus was not burned and discarded outside the camp. The flesh of Jesus was raised to new, perfect life and then He ascended into heaven where He is alive and still in human form. A real physical Jesus living in the presence of God. And guess who's seated there with Him? Me, 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 me. Us. It's a living way we have access into God now. And I love the picture there that He opened through the curtain. What was the curtain symbolic of? The flesh of Jesus. So again, that that whole purpose of the curtain separating that holy place from the most holy place was that's Jesus. Like everything else in the tabernacle. Pointing to Jesus. And so the curtain was ripped from top to bottom, the New Testament says, meaning we don't need the curtain anymore because the actual flesh has been torn through the sacrifice of Christ's body. And then a living way was established through His resurrection. And that living way, Jesus' work to pioneer a new path into heaven for His people, our access is through both His death and His life. It wasn't enough just for Him to die for us. He also has to live. And we have to live in and through Him. So our confidence to enter God's presence in the very heavenly holy of holies is through this new and living way and it's based on Jesus who said Himself that He is the way, the truth, and the life. Through His blood and His flesh. And then in verse 21, the writer reminds us of all he has shown us about the high priestly office of Jesus by saying, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, he's giving an ironclad case for our confidence. And so he points again to Jesus as our great high priest, the one who stands between God and man, ministers to God, ministers to man. But he also points out that Jesus is fulfilling that role of high priest Not just toward us, but as a priest does, he's also fulfilling it towards God. He's said to be a great high priest over the house of God. Jesus works on our behalf and he does so before God. And if you'll remember back in Hebrews 3, 6, we saw this. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So as he ministers as the great high priest over the house of God, that is literally us in the presence of God that he's ministering over. Okay? So all that being said, so what? Great. Fantastic. High five. Let's eat lunch. That was good. Well, if you look here in verse 19, verse 19 says since. And then went through verse 21. And since we have, there's another since, all kinds of sense in this. Now here in verse 22, we get the so that, so then. Since this and since this, so then this. 
And the so then is going to run all the way through verse 25, the end of our passage today. And we're going to develop some salad theology. Not solid, salad theology today. And salad theology is solid theology, by the way. You're saying, what are you talking about? What is this salad theology you speak of, Jason? Well, we start with a bunch of lettuce. That's how you make a salad, right? You start with lettuce. You're like, my gosh, what? give it up, bro. Actually, in our passage today, it's let us. Okay? And we're going to see four lettuces. Lettuces, lettuce. Four lettuces. Verses 22, there's one. Verses 20, verse 23, there's one. And verse 24, there's one and kind of one, another one. Verse 25, I mean. So an overarching let us is what we're looking at here. What are the let us's? It's hard to say, okay? Get off my back, y'all. The since then, okay, since this is true, so then is the let us. Okay? Confused? Well, stay with me. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place through the body and blood of Jesus, and since Jesus is our great high priest over the house of God, so then first let us, verse 22, draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places, and since Jesus is our great high priest, so then let us first draw near. If I told you, imagine the crazy thought that this might be possible, that you are welcome to approach Almighty God with no fear, and that He would delight to welcome you, what would you do? I don't know what your answer would be, but the author of Hebrews says that it ought to be that you will draw near to Him. And what does that mean? Well, the Greek word for let us draw near means, are you ready? To move near something. (laughs) Profound, isn't it? How near... Are you to God? What are you doing to put yourself closer to God? Now listen, you're accepted in the beloved. I'm not talking about being saved here. Nothing you could do. We saw that when Andrew read Ephesians 2 this morning. You were saved by grace through faith. And that's not your own doing. But now that you are saved, now that you are in Christ, what are you doing to draw near to God? God who has thrown open the doors and said, Come! I want you to be with me. Okay, I'll get around to it. I got lots to do though, so let me see if I can pencil you in somewhere. Since we have confidence to enter God's place due to our great high priest's work, let us draw near. Move toward Him. Draw near to Him. Make near Him the place where you are, where you live, where you dwell, where you exist, and where you flourish. 
And there's more on this in application, but don't miss the simplicity and beauty of this. Since we have access to God, move toward God. Since He will not incinerate us, but will rather celebrate over us, then boldly, confidently draw near to Him. Please. Pretty please. And while we've seen that we can confidently do that, the writer of Hebrews says that we are to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Wow. Our drawing near has qualifiers as to why and how we can do that. And they're not based on us. We are to draw near with a true heart. Did you make, give yourself a true heart? God did that. That's part of the new covenant, right? True here means the opposite of what is uncertain. You ever uncertainly try to draw near to God? It's impossible. Maybe. A true heart. The opposite of what is uncertain. We can, you can, I can as believers, as those who are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, we can with certainty, with no doubting in our inner person, our heart, draw near to God. We are not wondering if we should or could be there. That's coupled with being in full assurance of faith. We are certain we are welcome and we have full assurance of that because our faith is in the work of our great high priest. So that's our soul, our heart, and our spirit, our faith. Because the author says our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And we saw back in 9, 13 and 14... For the blood of bulls, goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Listen to me. We no longer have as believers, as followers of Jesus, listen to me. We no longer have an evil Sin-aware conscience. That was back in chapter 9. Okay, We're just recovering this for a second. We have a no-condemnation conscience. It's not that we are not aware that we have sin. It's that we are more aware that God has dealt with that sin and has swung the gavel and said not guilty. That's the conscience that we have now. Not, oh, God, I did it again. I'm such a jerk and you probably should just forget about me. We do not enter God's presence that way. We come confidently, boldly, speaking the truth. I sinned. And I'm sorry. And you have forgiven me of that sin. Which turns our sins into opportunities to worship. Not to grovel and wallow in self-pity. Knowing that in Christ Jesus we are not guilty and never will be again. 
And then the author points out that it's not just our soul and spirit that are clean, but even our bodies have been washed with pure water. Which is a kind of an odd statement, truthfully. Our bodies washed with pure water. Now some commentators say this refers to the rite of baptism. And I think you could probably make that case. But we also know that baptism itself does nothing to actually clean or cleanse anyone in and of itself. Matter of fact, if you got baptized in this tub back here, you're probably dirtier than when you got into it. Some rivers around here too, right? So I I see what they're saying there, um, but baptism doesn't cleanse us. I think, and this this is me thinking, okay? Don't write this down and say, well, that's what the Bible means. I think this is a reference to Jesus being seated in a human body and our association with him there as well. We saw in verse 20 that it was by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And it makes sense that his body is clean and then seated with him that our bodies have been washed as well. I don't know for sure though that the author is saying we have zero reason. I'm sorry. I do know for sure. Look at that. Not I thought my read what's on there, Jason. I do know for sure though that the author is saying for sure we have zero reason, body, soul, or spirit, to not draw near to God. There's nothing. If you are in Christ, listen to me. There is nothing that disqualifies you from entering the presence of God. From drawing near to Him. Nothing. He has made it so that our whole being, body, soul, and spirit, is justified in His presence. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we should, with no reservations, draw near to God. Let us do that. Now verse 23 It gives us our next leaf of lettuce. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. So let us draw near and now let us hold fast. And that means to keep firm possession of something. How many of y'all ever been through like uh, international airport? What do you got to have in an international airport? You got to have your passport. You don't have your passport, you ain't leaving that joint. Oh, I decided to go back to where you came from, like when you're trying to get out of there. You hold it fast, you keep it close. I wore a fanny pack to keep mine in. It's right here. And we would ask each other when we went on these mission trips, got your passport? And we'd always say, right here. Got it. Hold fast, right? Keep firm possession of something. And what are we to hold fast? What are we wearing our fanny pack here? What are we to keep firm possession of? The confession of our hope. Confession is the word homologia, legia, homologia, and it means to say the same thing as. Our confession, listen is us saying about God what God says about God. And it's us saying about ourselves what God says about us. And we've seen time and time again that God has made us fit 
to be in His holy presence. He has made us holy as He is holy. That's what God says, and it has to be what we say as well. And we are to hold fast to that confession. You're going to have to pry it out of my cold, dead fingers, and then it ain't going to matter because I'm going to be in heaven with Jesus anyway. Hold fast. Hold it close. Hold it firmly and passionately as a precious possession. And this confession is the confession of our hope. We say that we have a hope. Back in chapter 6, verses 17 to 20, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek's not what's important there, but don't get stuck there. Our hope is the sure and steadfast anchor for our souls, and that being the very person and work of Jesus Christ, who has gone behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies and now sits in the very presence of God. He is our hope. And that hope is our anchor. And in verse 23 of chapter 10, that is the confession of our hope that we are to hold fast to. And we are told to do so without wavering, without a back and forth of wondering. Maybe today, maybe not today so much. I ain't feeling it today. That's wavering. Back and forth. Double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Without a back and forth, on again, off again mentality. No doubting, no anxiety. Remember, it is finished. He has done it. And the author says, hold that confession fast without wavering. Why? Because you got all the information in order in your head? That don't hurt. But that ain't why. For He who promised is faithful. Again, the focus is on Him. Not me. He is faithful. He has done it and He will do it. And like we saw last week, He is doing it. Even when I may not see it, when I may not feel it, when it don't jive with me one day, it don't matter, He's still doing it. So draw near and hold fast. And the next let us, actually the last time let us is said, verses 24 and 25. And... Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Draw near, hold fast, and now let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I find that interesting, the progression here. That this is where he goes after drawing near and holding fast. I mean, I get it, but it's a little surprising. Drawing near and holding fast, we're talking about kind of the invisible things, right? 
We don't see Jesus yet. We don't see God, but we're to draw near to Him. I can't see my confession, but I can hold it fast. But here we see the visible part of all this, the end time part, right? A kind of application of the other two. As I draw near to God, as I hold fast to my confession, it's going to lead me to do something. Right? I know I mentioned it a few times in the past in the concept the, the concept of sit, walk, stand. And maybe you're going, what? What are you talking about? So the concept is this. It's a book written by Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee, N-E-E. And in the book, he teaches through the book of Ephesians. And what's said in that book is that when you look at Ephesians, it's, it's outlined in those three words. Sit, walk, stand. And the order is incredibly important. Okay? We have to see our position in heaven as seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And until you see that, you can't do anything. But once you see that, then you're called to walk through the world and stand against the enemy. And you can't walk through the world, you can't stand with the enemy until you see yourselves as having been seated by God in the heavenlies with Christ. Our work only results from our rest. You cannot work until you first see the rest that you have. Instead of trying to earn your salvation, which is what so many people do in their working, I'll show God, I'm serious this time. I'll show them I've got to figure it out better. I'm going to try harder to do better. Pointless. Absolutely fruitless. Unless you see the work that Jesus has done and what you have been given by grace, through faith, through that person and work of Christ, you have to start as seeing yourself as seated. And once you see yourself as seated, then you're ready to walk. And that's what I see in this pattern here. Okay, We draw near to God in the heavenly, heavenlies as we see and know the work of Jesus and what He did to get us there. We hold fast our confession of the truth of all of that and then we get to work here on earth with and for each other. Once I know my standing in heaven with God, and I confess that standing, and I consistently am holding fast and confessing that confession, that's going to show in my works. And we as the church are to lean in and lean on each other to help us all figure out what we should be doing. And let us consider how to stir up one another to what? Two things. Love and good works. The whole Bible can be summed up in the commands to love God and love your neighbor. Jesus said that. Paul says the whole law is summed up in loving your neighbor as yourself. And so then, that's translated into what we do. That's our works, right? Listen to me. I will reiterate No one has ever or will ever be saved by their works. But all who are saved are shown to be saved 
by the works that they do. Salvation is the root, the works are the fruit. Ephesians 2 says we're saved by grace through faith. Andrew read it this morning, not knowing I was going to say that. And we're saved by grace through faith for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should think about. Theorize about. That we should do them. And here the author of Hebrews is saying we need each other to push each other in being stirred up, provoked, to do these works. And that thought of needing each other is emphasized even more when he says in verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, which could be this fourth let us. Let us meet together. Draw near, hold fast, stir up, meet. Not M-E-A-T. Now I'm I'm a meat fan, mind you, but that's not what he's saying. M-E-E-T. To get together. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. If we are going to stir up one another, we need to meet. Draw near, hold fast, stir up, and meet. The Greek phrase here for meet together is literally, are you ready? Assembling yourselves. Avengers assemble. Christians assemble. And the word for assembling, let me see if I can do this. Episun agoge. Episun agoge. Emphasis on, never mind. Which refers to a religious assembly. Episunagoge. Hear the word synagogue in it? Oh, we need to be in the same place with each other for the purpose of our worship and our faith. We live in a time and a culture where we have virtual everything. Andrew mentioned the Apple goggles. Have you seen them? People sitting in public with these big goggles on, it's virtual reality. And they're basically what it is, they've got their, their computer or their movie or whatever up virtual reality in front of them so that that's what they're seeing. They're not seeing other people. All you see is somebody sitting there with these goggles on. And you're like, what is going on there? And this dude or lady, dude looks like a lady. Anyway, <laughs> they're sitting there with these goggles and they're in their own little world. A world of virtual reality. That's the culture that we live in. But you know what? That ain't Christianity. It can't be. Virtual everything, including meetings. I talk to kids all the time in therapy. You got any friends? Yeah. And I'll ask them how many friends you got. Seven or eight. I'm like, that's great. That's good. That's a good number. I'm like, what do y'all do? Oh, we play games. Okay. What kind of games do you play? Oh, you know, like Fortnite. That's not a message about Fortnite, by the way. Or against it, for that matter. And you know what? They've never met these people. Their friends are in other states. And they found people that they like and can play with and have fun with. And they communicate. They've got little earpieces and they talk. And and they've never met these people. And we meet up every night. 
to play Fortnite. No, you don't. But that's the culture that we live in. Virtual everything. And listen, I'm all for the live stream. It is a great tool if you need it. If you can't get out, please absolutely access it. We were talking this morning. Amanda's got an uncle in Ohio that watches us every week. I've got an aunt in Indiana that watches us every week. That's great. That's wonderful. I wish they would be able to meet with other people where they are. And sometimes they can't. Sometimes they're shut in. Great. Fantastic. But let me tell you something here, church. Alistair Begg said, never be needlessly absent from the assembling of the saints. Never be needlessly absent from the meeting. And you're like, well, you've got job security in that. You want to make sure we're here. This has nothing to do with me. Well, nothing to do with my job security. This is my third job, y'all. It's my favorite, by the way. There is a time when, when virtual meetings are a blessing and a help. But there ain't a thing better for the saints of God than to be together in the same place, seeing, hearing, smelling, and touching each other. Don't touch me too much. I'm not in it. Physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual closeness and togetherness. Life together. Friction. And so the author of Hebrews says to not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. It's become a habit among these early Jewish believers to start ditching church. It's become a habit. And listen, if you've missed church recently, I'm not fussing at you. Don't, don't receive it as that. Sometimes you've got to miss. But it has already become a habit for them to start not meeting with other people. Why weren't these people in Hebrews meeting? We don't know for sure. It could be fear of persecution because that was starting to happen. It could be, I don't really know if this thing they call meeting is really what we're supposed to do. I mean, I go to the synagogue, I offer my sheep and bulls and goats. Well, don't do that anymore. Meet! Meet, meet. Don't, not that meet, this meet. And I can feel sympathy for them, especially if they're facing possible persecution. But listen to me. Persecution... Things being hard, opposition, all of these things are there to push us together, not pull us apart. Listen, I know, I wasn't at your house, but I know for some of you all, getting here this morning was very, very difficult. I know it. And here you are. And what I'm saying to you is the Bible is confirming to you it's worth it. Maybe it doesn't feel worth it right now. Maybe you're like, oh my gosh. I hear you and I want to encourage you. The Holy Spirit of God says this is what you should be doing. Amen. And when it's hard, all the more. Yeah. <laughs> Don't let it push us, pull us apart. Let it push us together. We are to be encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day mentioned here is not Super Bowl Sunday, by the way. 
the only reference to the Super Bowl you'll get today. You're welcome. <laughs> the day mentioned here is the day of the Lord. The time when all will come to a conclusion. And all will be made right on that day. But as that day draws near, how are things going to go for believers? John Piper said in a message on this passage, it's not going to get easier to be a Christian. It's going to get harder. Listen to me. What that means is we are going to need each other more and more. And that has been true since the first century. How much more then in the 21st century? So we have to be meeting together, encouraging one another, stirring one another up to love and good deeds. That's the author's point here. Don't let the hard deter you from meeting with other believers. Let the hard be the reason you make meeting a priority in your life. And let me say here too, that this meeting that he's referring to is not just the assembly of the church. It's not just Sunday morning. All that's definitely implied. But I think it's also saying we need to be meeting as often as we can, in as small and as a larger group as we can. Pairs, four or five, ten, twenty, all of us together, whatever, whenever, whoever we can. And don't forsake this. As a matter of fact, do it all the more as the days get harder and we need each other all the more. The Christian life is shaped and formed in community, not in isolation. And that is all the more true as the time passes and we near the culmination of all things. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us stir one another up and let us meet. And of course that brings us to application from all that we've seen today. Four C's. There's seven in the world. There's four in application. Four C's this morning for application. Come, confess, cajole, that was my favorite, and congregate. That was the hardest one. That's what's my favorite one. Come, confess, cajole, that's C-A-G-O-L-E, and congregate. And again, the, the passage lays that out for us. Based on the four let us statements we just said and that were covered in our passage today. So the first one is come. And the, that application point is referring to draw near. What do we do with this truth today? Draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have spent the last several weeks seeing and re-seeing the work of Jesus for us as our high priest. And oh, what He has done for us. And as such, we are to have a true heart full of the assurance of our faith and that heart having been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We are clean. We are pure. We are holy due to the work of Jesus. And that being said, there is absolutely no reason that we as followers of Jesus should not Draw near to the God who loves us, to the God who saved us, and to the God who made us whole. His heart for His people is that we should come to Him. And keep coming to 
Him. Always be coming to Him. Jesus said it when He was on the earth. Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you. Learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy and My burden is light. That's your Lord. That's His heart for you. Listen, the world is screaming for you to come to this, come to this, come to this, come to this. You need this, you want this. And Jesus saying this is, come to me. And you're going to find rest. Anybody want rest? Amen. Some of you are like, I need rest from being here this morning. Right, that's what I'm saying. At the end of all things, what's the call? The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. So you come, and if you hear, you say it too. Come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That's the end of all things. A big giant city falls out of the sky. And Jesus stands in the midst of it as the very son of that city. And he says, come on, y'all. Come on. I built this for you. So that you would see me in all my glory. What was his desire for us we saw a few Wednesday nights ago? That we would be with him and see his glory. Come. See my glory. Come, let's spend eternity enjoying one another. Come and rest from all your labor and work your guts out for all eternity in the power that the Spirit of God provides. Come. I don't know where you are in your spiritual walk. Maybe you're not even a believer. But I'll tell you this morning, the call of God is, Come, draw near to me. And for us believers, it's the same. Come on, come on. Further up, further in, come on. There's more than you could ever possibly hope to explore in the depths and the riches of the grace and glory of Jesus Christ. So come on. You're never going to reach the end of the internet. So forget it. Jesus says you're never going to reach the end of this either. Come on. Come on. Can you hear your Lord and your Savior and your brother Saying to you this morning, come on, come on, come, draw near. And do so knowing that you have been washed clean. What a reason to come to Him. What a reason to rejoice. Come. But now I'll say this, James 4, but He gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. Oh my, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Let me say this, you will not come arrogantly into the presence of God. You will not draw near to God arrogantly. Confidently, yes. Boldly, yes. But not arrogantly. Look what I've done. No, 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 no. Humble yourself. Realize what He has done for you. And come on. Come, now confess. 
And that's talking about hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. What is your confession? What do you say about your standing before God? What do you say about who God is and what He has done? We sing a song that says, Now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. May that be our confession. What words do you use to verbalize your faith, your confession? What does your life confess about who Jesus is and what He's done for you? Do you know that He is your hope? Hold fast that confession of your hope without wavering. Let that confession be your anchor in the storm that is this life. And what confession is that? Romans 10, 8 to 10. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth, don't buy that preach the gospel, use words if necessary, junk. Use words, absolutely. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The confession is what? Jesus is Lord. That's a saving confession. And that's the confession we are to hold fast to. How about this? I'll give you a confession to hold fast to. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And what's the answer? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure, here's a confession, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hold fast to that confession. Come, confess, now cajole. Stir up. Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And I go to Philippians here. Look at this. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche, Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So these two ladies have some friction among them. They ain't getting along. And what does Paul say to do? Stir them up! Shake them! Hey! Y'all get along! There's no room for this in the family of God. We got work to do. Maybe your complaint against her is valid. Forgive it. Amen. Stop the fussing and get on to the working. And you need each other to do that. Amen. Listen, we need to help each other. We need to lovingly push each other. We need to stir one another up. 
And sometimes that's surely going to take some tough conversations, some strong accountability, some get-off-your-butt talks, and a lot of love with and for each other in the midst of it all. Speaking the truth in love to each other. Always truth and always love. If you can say something and you're saying, well, I'm just telling them what they need to hear. I don't care if they receive it or not. That ain't love. Well, I'm just blunt. I can't help it. Then shut up. I can't help it. If there's no love in it, keep your truth to yourself. But if there's no truth in it, keep your love to yourself too. We need to be able, listen to me, we need to be able to get up in each other's face and say, I love you and you've got to do better. There's works that need done. You need to be doing them. I need your help. I'm so tired of looking at people and saying, if there's anything I can do for you, just let me know. Get up in my face and say, I need you to do this. I say, okay. We saw back in Hebrews 3, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. Why? So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Listen, we got to have hard conversations with each other in love, stirring one another up. And I tell you what, I think that's missing in the church today, by and large. We are scared to death to have hard conversations with people. Let's do better in the power of the Spirit, right? For the glory of God. If I got to do better, y'all, y'all tell me, hey man, drop the ball here, it seems. And hopefully I lovingly repent and say, I'll, by the power of God, I will, I will seek to correct this deficiency in my walk. Not be like, well, who are you to change me? I'll tell you who I am. I'm your brother and I love you. We have got to stir one another up in love. Lastly, come confess, cajole, and congregate. We've got to meet, y'all. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Listen to me. We have to, have to, have to meet together. And listen, I've heard all the reasons why people don't do it. I'm an introvert. I've been hurt by the church. I've got social anxiety. I've got small kids. I'm tired. I work a lot. It's raining. Somebody smells funny. Don't like the preacher. I've heard that one. Let me tell you what. These things make it all the more important to meet. These things... All of them, whatever it is that you find for a reason not to meet outside of just physically I cannot because of illness, sickness, I'm in a different state, whatever. All of these things that you find for reasons not to meet don't make the command to meet not apply to you. You need other people to help you. You need other people to pray for you. You need other people to hold your kids, take them to the bathroom, love you, bless you, and enable you to draw near and hold fast and be stirred up to love and good works. Sanctification is not a private journey. It's a corporate lifestyle. We need each other. You need me, whether you like it or not. 
I need you. There was a section in my life, and I'm almost done, promise. When we quit going to church as a family, Dad was working more than he had been six, seven days a week. And I didn't know it then, but there was problems relationally in the church that we were going to. I didn't know that then. My parents shielded me from that, and I'm glad for that, by the way. And you know what? God stirred something up in me as a teenager that I started walking to the church in Helen. That, that wasn't where we were going before. And I'm glad He did it. Because I needed other people. I needed the instruction of the Word. And let me say this, young folks, get to church. If your parents aren't coming, call us. We'll get you here. Make it a point when you assemble, not if you assemble, whenever, wherever, to encourage one another, to stir one another up, and you've got to be meeting together to do that. And let me say this. this here's, here's my real challenge for you all. This is not just about Sunday morning. I'm going to see if I'm, trying to see if I'm looking in everybody's eyes. If it makes you uncomfortable, I don't care. Listen to me. We have got to be meeting together. We need ministry groups. We need prayer groups. We need fun groups. We need meal groups, study groups, life skills groups, youth groups, old folks groups. We need groups. And that's only going to happen when you get busy. I'm not going to organize it. We're not going to organize it. Get together. Meet. One-on-one. Groups, 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 groups. Listen, get some groups going, y'all. There's some application for you. You say, well, tell me what to do. I did. Get some groups going. Get together and pray. Get together and talk. Get together and eat. Don't just eat, probably. Maybe sometimes. A body part apart from the body, is dying. So get together. So often one of the first signs of drift is the forsaking of the assembling of yourselves together. Donald Guthrie says, something more than individual effort is needed if love and good works are to be fostered. John Piper says, spiritual gifts are discovered in fellowship. And Alistair Begg says, you don't have to do it for everybody, but you can do it for somebody. And the Bible says this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were, done, were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. God gets to work when we get together. So meet. Congregate. Not just Sunday morning. Let's pray.
Father, we thank You again that You have done everything necessary for us to draw near to You, to hold fast our confession, to stir one another up to love and good works, and for us to meet together. You've done it all. You've given us Your Spirit. Now help us to be doers of the Word and not hearers only. Help us to love who You are and what You've done. Help us to love each other and help us see those things that You are doing come to fruition in our individual lives and in our corporate life. And may we do it all the more as we see the day drawing closer. And oh, that day, we look forward to it and say, Come, Lord Jesus. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction, a good word. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and meet with us and eat with us if you can.